going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in just a moment. In Pastor Paul's absence, setting aside the series on Elisha for a week or two, which he will wrap up when he comes back, and in his absence, doing what I like to do most, which is to return to the fundamentals, the things that we already know but not necessarily believe, the things that we understand but don't necessarily use. And in days of trial, in days of testing, the Lord says, pick it up and use it. Pick it up and believe it. And the thing that I am going to focus on this morning is our identity, that fundamental of our identity. Who are we? We are a spirit-filled people who by that spirit are gathered in order that we would call God our Father. That is one of the fundamentals of our faith, which is so significant and important for us to not only know, but to believe in all of the ways that it helps us. From a biblical perspective, we are very much so living in days of trial, but those days of trial are days of testing. Okay, that's, that's a biblical perspective on, on trials. They're not just hardships. They're more than hardships. They're testing. Moses said to the people in the wilderness, he says, the Lord brought you out here in order to, to test you, to, to see what's in your heart. Psalm 26 verse 2 says, praise, a very, very dangerous prayer, says, Lord, prove me and test me. See what is in my heart. And that's exactly what trials do. It's what exactly what days of, of adversity do. Is it, is it test us? What, well, what's in your heart? What makes you tick? Not just what ticks you off, but <laughs> what makes you tick? <laughs> Who are you? And is that identity assigned to you by the world or from God Almighty? We live in days of refining, not only in the world, but also in the church. We take great comfort from the stories of the Bible that in the tumult of the world that God is in control. God is in control. But in these, these times of adversity, in God's greatness and in his power, God wants more, merely to, more than merely to, to comfort us in the difficulty. He wants to humble us also in our difficulty and to refine us. God has purposes for adversity. Not just comfort so that we can be gladly going along our merry way. Great, God's in control. God bless us. God help us. God's, God's got it. Everything's under control so that we can just go about our happy way. No, God has purposes for that adversity in which he says that he's in control. And the purpose is one of refinement. And it's a metaphor that is used all through the scripture, one of, of extracting dross from something that is precious. And the purpose of God in adversity is to extract 
dross. In other words, all of the things that, that we would rely on, other than the, 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 the love of a heavenly father, the, the belovedness that we have as an identity in God, all of the other ways in which we would seek to have an identity in this world, all of the things that, that replace the truth that we know, but we actually live and believe things that aren't according to that truth, that's called dross. And God has purposes in adversity to deal with it, to, to make us the silver that is there, to the gold that is there. So Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. God is the refiner. We are his precious material. The world is his crucible, which is a completely different perspective on the world than most people would have. The world is the Lord's crucible, and the dross is that worldliness that is in us. Refinement means a return to the fundamentals of our faith, to teach us to actually use the things that we believe instead of them laying dormant within us, unused. We, we know so much, don't we? We're so privileged with, with revelation from God and, and we know so much. And so when I'm talking about refinement, I'm not talking so much about things that we need to stop doing. I'm talk, talking about things we need to start believing. We know so much. And refinement is the, the process of God. The trials are used by God to help us to become what we already are to become what, already, what God has already declared us to be, which is his children. To embrace what nothing we can uh, do could ever earn for us, but is already given to us that God is our Father. To take the things that we know, but they often lie unused and unbelieved in our life. Like those tomato seeds you've got in your windowsill, ready to go ready to go for, for the spring, and you're going to put them in the ground, and everything is there. But everything that is there has to be extracted through the process of being planted and watered and then it produces fruit. All of the dried things that you might use in your kitchen sometimes that have been dried out and you reconstitute it with water like mushrooms or fruit or whatever it might be and you, you, you see it, it just, it just begins to uh, change its shape and, and, and be reconstituted. Uh, so times of trial can do that for us where God takes what is lying within us, what is dormant within us, with all the things that we know to be true, but we fail to believe, and says, pick it up and believe it. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4 says this, Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, and Paul's going to be contrasting idols with the real God in this text. Tremendous contrast. There's something that is unreal, and there's something that is real. We know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I hope you can see the contrast in the text. 
There is something that is absolutely nothing. It's worthless. There's no substance to it whatsoever. And then he lifts the Corinthian church. He lifts their minds to say, but look at this. This is real. This is, this is something from whom all things exist and whom, whom you exist for. And he uses the word Father. That is the one that we call Father, and he is real. That fundamental truth that I want to draw attention to from, from this text, it, it's an incredible grace that God has given to us that we call this God Almighty, this one from whom all things exist. We call that real God Father. We know it. You know it. I know it but it's hard to believe it. It's hard to use it in all of the circumstances of our heart and in our mind. But in days of adversity, when we're blessed by God to be asking the question as God's people, who are we? Who are we? And what are we doing here? What is our purpose? What is our identity? What makes us the people of God? Days where we're blessed, where we're not just carrying on as if there's nothing wrong. We're facing adversity. And this is the blessing of adversity to bring these things out. Here's the main point that I'd like to, to get across, that God is not only real, he's our father. It's an incredible thing. He is real, but he's more than real. He's our father. And this is the Spirit's healing balm for all of the ways that sin afflicts us. And, and sin does afflict us in so very many different ways. And God has given us the spirit as his people. He gathers us and he puts his spirit upon us. And by that spirit, we call God Father. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, it's called the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And there is so much so many ways that, that God helps us in the many ways that sin afflicts us, where we inflict self-harm upon us through our pride, through our insecurity, through our grasping for identities, all because of unbelief. All because of unbelief of what God tells us to be true about our identity in the Father. This is our identity. We are a spirit-filled people who are calling God our Father. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And so as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, I'd like you to understand these words as a preparation to come to the Lord's table, to comprehend and consider all of the things that our Lord has purchased for us and the reason, the grounds for confidence that we have in all of the things that Paul declares to the Corinthian church about God Almighty, from whom all things come, is our Father. And I want to remind us, as you hold those elements in your hands this morning and as we eat, that when the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says that by his wounds we are healed, very familiar words to us, by his wounds we are healed, that there is so much of that healing summed up in the single word, Father. I recognize I'm in a complex subject this morning with that single word. 
And I'm not gonna claim that it's, it's a magic bullet that's just gonna make all of your problems go away. But what I will say is this, that there is no other source of healing for all of the things that afflict us when it comes to the word Father. That in all of the ways that, that we will probably in some ways remain broken until glory, until we are, are, are finally completely healed at the Father's presence, that the healing that we do attain to will be through this word. Calling God Almighty, maker of all things, righteous and holy in himself, we are his beloved. In other words, the, the body of our Lord not only makes us clean, it makes us that beloved. It's hard to believe. It's, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to, to possess it. It's easy to move on to other things. It's easy just to get busy with the Christian life and define our, our life in so many different ways. But in times of adversity, it's a blessing to come back and say, what are the fundamentals? Who are we? What is our identity? It not only makes us clean in his presence, it, it not only washes away all of our guilt, but the object of that washing, the goal of that, of, that, of that cleansing, the way that Christ offered up his body in order to get glory for himself was to deliver us to the Father and to not lose any of them and to make us the beloved and cherished by God. So imagine this when, that, when, when our Lord was baptized. And the voice boomed from heaven, says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Think, wow, that, that's, those are amazing words. But they are amazing words. And it's because of those amazing words that, that his sacrifice can pass on that belovedness to us. Where God can look upon us as a very broken and marred people and say, they are my children. They are my beloved. Imagine that you fall in love with someone on the internet. Some of you have done that. Some of you will never do it again. But imagine you fell in love with someone on the internet only to discover that the person wasn't real. The person was an algorithm. Google's been tracking you so much and knows so much about you, has so much data on you, knows so much about what you like, what you care about, what you think about, what you're concerned about, where you go and what you do, that Google has prepared your perfect person. And it knows how to please you. It knows what you like, and you fall in love. You're sending money, and you're sending gifts until the day that you go to meet your beloved, and you realize it's a robot. It's not real. It's an algorithm. It's not a real person. And this is what Paul is laboring in this letter, to connect the Corinthians to, to something that is real with regards to the idols and all of those things. Yes, there's, there's something real about them. They're made out of something. They're made out of... Out of out of wood or stone or, or gold or silver or something. And so also the things that we project our identities onto in some sense are, are real. In other words, we can name them. And yet Paul says, there's no substance to them. All of the ways that we try to have an identity in this world where we are loved 
an identity where we are safe, an identity where we are secure, an identity where we have self-worth, an identity where we have dignity. All of those things that we cast those things upon where God himself only can deliver. They're algorithms. And the devil knows so much about us that it's pretty easy for him to fool us. And Paul says they're not real. Then he contrasts that nothingness with the, the simple but most profound thought imaginable, which is that God is real. We know, he says, that God, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. A God Almighty is our Father. God is real, and he is our Father. And this truth unpacks so much in our life for healing and for living. It's so much a fundamental of our identity, of who we are as a church, as God's people. Can you see why we can give thanks in adversity, as James says, consider it all joy, brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. Why we can give thanks when God tests us through trial and he puts his finger on the devil's algorithms that are humming along in us. And we're forced to ask these very questions. Who am I? Who are we? What are we doing here? And how do we make our way? We are God's children. He is our father. And the one that we call father is the one through whom and for whom all things exist. A very concise way that Paul says so very, very much. And we are by the new birth adopted, adopted children of God. May God help us in days of trial to use this truth and to become what we already are. When our roots get into this stream, when our heart begins to push this kind of thinking through us, it sustains us and who we are called to be, the children of God. That's who we are in the world. Why God gathers us together. We're God's people. We're God's children. And so it makes sense that we, that we live in this world through our identity. That we make our way in this world. Not through just, well, buckle up and go. We're going to do it. But through a, a sense of, of calling and fruit that is borne out by us understanding this fundamental truth that those that believe in his name were given right the right to be called the children of God. Not by the will of man, but by the will of God. There's no other way to explain it. This is an identity that sustains us in our humility, and we need humility. When we're tempted to be proud, when we're tempted to boast, when we're tempted to be to be lifted up. It sustains our kindness when our reflexes are anger. 
It sustains us with a perspective that helps us in fear and despair. Those are things that we go through. If you're a breathing person, you know the temptations of pride, of the reflexes of, of anger. It sustains us in that perspective of, of dealing with our despair, and it also sustains us in perseverance when we run out of gas. We know what that's like too. You just run out of gas. How do you keep going? It's the fundamentals. It's, it's by coming back and being renewed in and awakened to the fundamentals that keeps us going. Humility. Nothing adorns God's people more beautifully than humility. Don't you love humble people? Aren't they beautiful? Isn't it a blessing when God gives you proximity to somebody who by the grace of God is, is not given all of this identity for a swagger, but it is given for a profound sense of humility before God. Where does that humility come from? Consider who it is that we are given intimacy and acceptance with when we call God Father. Would you just take a moment and as I said, Paul packs a lot into these, these few words. We know there is one God, our Father, from whom and through whom all things exist. Would you let your mind just wander as to who it is that we are given intimacy with and gain acceptance with when we call God our Father? Some of us know the struggle of gaining acceptance with an earthly father. Sometimes it wasn't easy. But there is... If that was outside of our reach, consider this, that there is, there's nothing further outside of our reach than to call God Father. There's no one with whom acceptance is more impossible than with God Almighty. Nowhere could acceptance be more impossible to earn than with God, the one who is in himself self-existent, who by the power of his word created all things, who is righteous and holy and above all else and abhors anything that blemishes. It is an impossibility. We cannot earn it, and so we don't. <laughs> we don't. That is why... Paul begins his word to the Ephesian church with this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Why? Because it, 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 it's the blessedness of, of God in himself and his purpose through Christ to ordain that we would be called the children of God. That adoption is something that is accomplished through the sovereign purpose of God to bring him glory in all that it displays of his mercy and of his kindness. And so Romans 8.16 says that the spirit bears witness with our spirit. That's how we believe it. We are a spirit-filled people, Paul says, 
And he says that spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That we are God's beloved. And there's no way to explain it other than simply, and it was so. Just like Genesis chapter 1. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible to hear, hear read publicly. Because over and over and over it says, and over the six days of creation, it says, let it be, let there be light. And all through the six days and after the letter B, <laughs> my favorite letter in the alphabet, let there be, it simply says, and it was so. And just consider all of the, the things that our mind wrestles with in creation, all that God created and did that is impossible for us to conceive by his power and all of the, the stars in the sky and all that God has made in nature and our, even our own selves being so fearfully and wonderfully made, simply made by the power of God that says, and it was so. So also it is inconceivable for us to consider being the beloved of God. I love analog gauges. I don't like digital gauges so much because they just, they don't help my imagination when it says 1055. It doesn't help me as much as, as, as 5-2 on an analog clock. I, I, I like gauges. And our life is as one big gauge that on the one side it says beloved and on the other side it says shame. And everything in our life, like King David, when the Lord told him that you, I am making a covenant with you. And David, I can imagine him as a, as a humbled heap of humanity on the floor in the presence of Almighty God. Because everything in his life and what he knew about himself would take that needle and push it over to the shame. There's absolutely nothing in him that would take that needle and push it over to beloved, except the very purpose and words sovereignly ordained by God to say, and it was so. It's a marvelous truth that should humble us every day. That excites me very much. <laughs> kindness. Don't you wish you were kinder? I wish I was kinder. I wish I had more capacity for kindness. I wish God's people were more kind sometimes, including myself. Kindness, of course, is the imitation of God. We, we are called to treat others the way that God treats us. Imagine you go into God's presence and you humble yourselves and you say, Almighty God, forgive me. And God says, you know what? I just gave out my last ticket for forgiveness yesterday. I'm sorry. Uh, the tank's out of gas. I just, I've had it with you. No, we depend upon Every single time we come into the presence of God with humility, with repentance, seeking forgiveness, and we're received with kindness. And the Bible simply says in a very easily understandable way, imitate God, be imitators of God. But it runs much deeper than that, merely than mere imitation, although that, that is what it, it's all about. Kindness comes from a people who are so secure in their belovedness as a child of God. And they have an identity that it is given by God. In other words, they know their sense of dignity and they know where it comes from. They know their sense of self-worth and they know where it comes from. And it's not threatened when they face indignity. 
because they already have it. They're not trying to extract that identity from the circumstances and the people around them. It's already given by God and nothing can take it away. And it paves a way for, for kindness in God's people. Perspective. Ever lose perspective yet today? Loss of perspective is a dangerous thing. And the devil loves to get us there. <clears throat> when our Lord taught us to pray, the very first words of his prayer, our Father who is in heaven, those are words of perspective. I often call the Lord's Day perspective-gaining day. <laughs> the first day of the week, let's gather and get perspective on the world. Let's gather as God's beloved, who is our Father through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Our Father who is in heaven are words that immediately put the whole world in its proper perspective, regardless of our circumstances. Why is that? Because our eyes are set on a truth that can never change. The very simple words, our Father. When you know when you roll over in bed and you're anxious, there's a reason why Jesus said, pray this way. When you pray, pray this way. And it begins, our Father who is in heaven. Everything in this world could be stripped away from you. Everything can be taken from you. But nothing can ever change this truth. That God Almighty, the Holy and Righteous One, from whom all things come, is my Father. And we're sealed with that Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, God says He's given His Spirit to seal us with a guarantee of that inheritance. It's a marvelous truth. Perseverance. We all need our daily bread. It comes from this sense of identity, nurturing this identity that God is our Father. That is our daily bread. Lord, give us our daily bread. How do God's people keep going? It is through nurturing this, this sense of identity that God has guaranteed by His Spirit as a deposit in us that we are God's children. And Christ has obtained glory because his death and resurrection delivers us to the Father. And when you eat the bread and drink the drink today, remind yourself of this amazing truth that this sacrifice is the way that God, or that Christ determined that he would get glory for himself. It will deliver you to the Father as his beloved. And everything is sufficiently provided in that sacrifice. And so this is what unites us in division. A common identity, a common calling, bearing the same fruit. This is what comforts us in affliction. An identity that can never be taken away. And it is also what confronts us when we wander from it. 